Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Katie Wollaston about human and animal viruses. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Beth. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. I'm a lecturer and a researcher in the law school at Queensland University of Technology. But I'm also a wife and a mum of two very small kids. Got two dogs, got five chickens and a hive full of native bees. Um, and I had somewhat of a career change in 2012 after my daughter was born. I was working as a lawyer in a high pressure law firm in Sydney in insurance law, something that didn't really have um, depth of meaning to me. So when my daughter was five weeks old, I started a master's in human rights and social justice at University of New South Wales. And after that, I did my PhD in law at Griffith University. Oh, wow. That's, that's a really interesting story, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know a few lawyers that it's, it's just such a stressful job, isn't it? It's incredibly stressful. People don't realise what it's like. And they've, they've sort of changed careers as well. But um, it's always good, I think, too, because you've always sort of got that legal background to sort of move forward. So what was it that inspired you to study human and animal viruses? Well, I've always loved the environment. I've always loved wild animals. Um, when I was growing up, I didn't come from a very educated family. So um, David Attenborough was my hero growing up because someone, you know, that was in, very into the things that I was into and was on TV constantly. Um, and this really intensified when I took a course in animal law as part of my master's at UNSW. And as an Australian, I've always been really fascinated by the responses that we had to sharks, for example, when they injured or killed people. It just seemed really illogical to me that we would retaliate at all. So I started to study the human wildlife relationship and how we respond to these instances of conflict between people and wild animals. But the focus on animal viruses really only came at the start of this year, of course, when COVID-19 became a pandemic. And more and more research showed that the underlying cause of this pandemic was likely to be wildlife trade and other things that we, people, do to reduce the habitat of wild animals and bring ourselves into contact with them. So as an expert on that side of the human-wildlife relationship, I was invited to participate in the IPBES workshop, which is the Intergovernmental Panel, uh, sorry, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. It's quite a mouthful, that's why we call it IPBES. Um, and they were bringing together a group of experts to do a report on biodiversity and pandemics, um, where we had to look at all the most recent science and evidence relating to the links between biodiversity and pandemics and make suggestions for governments and policymakers as to how to prevent these pandemics happening in the future. So exactly what is a virus? So I'm going to preface this answer by acknowledging that I'm not a scientist. <laughs> um, but what I, what I do know is that viruses are biological entities. They are part of the biodiversity of the living world. 
and they rely on the cells of other organisms to survive and reproduce because they can't capture or store energy themselves. So in other words, they cannot function outside of a host organism. And so essentially viruses are microorganisms that are a critical part of biodiversity and are themselves hosted and transmitted by diverse animal species, including humans. And many of them are found in multiple species and can be passed between species. Could you explain about the connection between COVID-19 and wildlife? Of course. So COVID-19 is a virus that very likely came from a bat species and was transmitted from that bat either directly to humans or through another vector, another animal host, such as a civet cat or a pangolin. We don't know, scientists don't know exactly how it got from the bat to the humans, but they suspect it was via a third species. So the relationship between COVID-19 and, COVID and wildlife is that COVID-19 came from wildlife and was passed from wildlife to people. Is the environmental destruction leading to an increase in zoonotic diseases? So these viruses are passed from animal species to human species via contact between the two. And environmental destruction is leading to a lot more contact between us humans and wild animals that, ca that are carrying the diseases. So for example, climate change is pushing species out of their normal habitats, often into human areas. And so we're coming more into contact with wildlife because of something like climate change. Similarly, land clearing and agricultural intensification are removing animal habitat and pushing us closer to animal habitat. So there's more connections or there's more opportunity for connection between humans and wild animals. At the same time, our consumption of wild animals is really increasing at an exponential rate. So not only are we coming into contact with them in their habitat, but we're also seeking them out and bringing them into our own habitats, essentially. And that might be either via capturing them for pet trade and then shipping them off across the world for um, pet purposes or for fur purposes or using them for bushmeat um, or using their parts and components for medicine or traditional medicine. Yeah, that's quite interesting. You mentioned about the medicine because there's a lot of animal products that go into medicines and I think a lot of people aren't really aware of that, are they? No, I don't think they are. I think a lot of people figure that uh, animal components are used in things like traditional Chinese medicine, which they don't really subscribe to and has taken a lot of blame for the destruction of particular species like ivory from elephants, for example. But really, all of our modern medicine has its links in biodiversity as well. So, for example, um, we know that spider venom created the... Um, the antidote to heart disease or heart attacks, for example, is you, uh, spider venom uh, was, was used for medicine. But in many other respects, 
um, our medicines, our modern medicines that we use in Western society also are derived from wildlife or wild plants. That's really surprising. So what, what type of rules are in place and do they really go far enough? So if you think about the breadth of the different types of causes for this pandemic, so we have wildlife trade, we have climate change, we have habitat fragmentation and uh, land clearing, we have laws that cover all of those things. We also have biosecurity laws that attempt to minimise the movement of unwanted microbes that can make people and animals sick. We have laws around the health of animals that are being traded both um, farm animals and wild animals. We have global organisations that are tasked with monitoring animal health worldwide and detecting emerging infectious diseases, but they are mostly focused on farmed animals and not wild animals. For example, the World Organisation for Animal Health, which is tasked with tracking animal diseases, mostly from farmed animals. We do have some international laws that are focused on the health of wild animals that are traded. For example, the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. But that convention is limited to international trade and only for endangered species. So the trade of more common species and trade within a domestic country that's not international trade are not covered by that legislation. What we're missing are laws that are focused on pandemic prevention and that really link human health to animal and environmental health. We do of course have international agreements around issues like climate change and biodiversity protection, but we can see that they are just not working. So we know that the current species extinction rate is 100 times higher than it would be without human occupation of the world and our laws aren't slowing that down. Land clearing is increasing constantly and our laws aren't slowing that down. We have hit what is called the planetary boundaries around land system change, biochemical flows and reductions in genetic diversity. So the risk of more pandemics increasing as our environments change due to human interference and the laws that we have are not slowing down those risks. Sounds like it's a good case for people to go vegetarian. Funny you should say that actually. Uh, eating less meat would certainly help uh, lower land clearing and lower the transmission of diseases from farmed animals to people and is one of the recommendations that was made in the IPVEST report. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you can be vegetarian for many different reasons, but environmental reasons, yeah, that's that's a really good one as well. So can you tell us about the report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services? I certainly can. The report was um, drafted by 22 experts from around the world and there were lots of different types of experts. There were ecologists and veterinary scientists and epidemiologists and economists and me, a lawyer. Um, and we met online, of course, COVID meant we couldn't uh, meet face to face. We met online over a series of a few weeks. 
to gather that that science and evidence around these connections and possible prevention mechanisms. What we found was really startling, and I think much more startling than any of us really had anticipated. So what we found was the science supports the fact that there's an estimated 1.7 million undiscovered viruses in animal hosts around the world. Of these, up to 850,000 have the ability to be passed to humans and become emerging infectious diseases. And some of these then have the potential to become a pandemic, which of course means a disease that has a high level of community transmission and is uh, spreading amongst countries in at least two continents of the world. And the risk of these diseases passing to humans is increasing, as I've mentioned, because the animals are losing their habitats and being forced into human areas um, and for the other reasons that I've mentioned already. What we also found was that we have about five new diseases emerging in people from wildlife every year. And this is only going to increase if we don't do anything to prevent it. Now, really significantly, what we found is that prevention is entirely possible. Because prevention is a lot cheaper than the economic costs that we're seeing with respect to COVID-19 around the world. You know, it's trillions of dollars annually we're looking at globally for uh, the, the economic costs of, of this particular pandemic. And what we found that the costs of preventing another pandemic relating to a, tr a complete transformation of the way that we deal with the environment is likely to be about one hundredth of the cost of our current dealings with our COVID-19. Oh, yeah, well, that's sort of very, very sensible that uh, funding is actually put into that rather than letting something like this happen because um, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg because, you know, I mean, people are comparing coronavirus with the flu and it, it certainly, you know, you can't really compare it because there's, there's long-term effects that we don't even know about yet. So um, uh, how are Indigenous people and women disadvantaged by pandemics? So women and Indigenous people are disproportionately affected by things like climate change and environmental degradation. We know this, we've got evidence for, of, for this. But this is also the same with respect to the effects of COVID-19, both the physical effects, the physical health effects, and the social effects. So we know, for example, that women are at greater risk um, because of transmitting COVID-19 because 70% of our social and healthcare workers on the front line are women. So initially they, are, they have that greater chance of transmitting the disease. Um, and as probably many of your listeners would have experienced, uh, especially around Melbourne, they are subject to a much higher workload due to things like school shutdowns and workplace closures. The extra responsibilities of those tend to fall on women. Similarly, with Indigenous communities, they are also very seriously disadvantaged. They generally have lower access to healthcare and there are existing social inequalities that mean they are 
more likely to contract the virus and then have difficulty um, getting the healthcare and the help that they need during that um, period of sickness. So for example, um, in 1918, our last really big pandemic was in 1918 with the, the Spanish flu or the influenza. And in 1918, we know that that pandemic killed Maori in New Zealand at seven times the rate of Europeans. And in 2009, the H1N1 influenza pandemic had a four times greater mortality rate in Native Americans than in the general US population. So we can see that it does affect uh, Indigenous people and women differently uh, to the standard white male that is used to test the medicine to treat these diseases. So what do you think is the best way forward? So the uh, It Best report uh, wonderfully outlines many different ways to go about preventing the, a, a pandemic error. So what we're seeing is that the rate of pandemics is increasing and we are leading ourselves into this era of pandemics where there's likely to be more and more pandemics, the more environmental destruction that we undertake. So they provide hundreds of different ways to prevent this era of pandemics. And really what it comes down to is transformational change in the way that we view the environment the way that we treat the environment and the way that we interact with the environment. So as I mentioned, there's many, many ways to achieve that. But one important way is to make decisions, everyday decisions about our economy and our uh, farming and all different aspects of decision making that politicians make every day. Make those decisions using what's called a one health approach. So a one health approach means that we always, in every decision we make, are considering the health of people, the health of animals, and the health of the environment, and the fact that they are all interconnected. And the more that we anticipate and the more that we can understand that our health, our human health, is connected to environmental and animal health, the more we can make decisions that are consistent with increasing the health of all of those three things. So how has Australia uh, responded to this? So the Australian response uh, is underwhelming, I guess, to say the least. Um, there's no official response with respect to the IPBES report just yet. But what we do know is that the uh, economic response from the Australian government has not been consistent with a One Health approach. So for example, the Australian government hasn't signed the Leaders Pledge for Nature, which was a United Nations initiative from earlier this year, where leaders committed to a One Health approach to environmental protection. So they haven't signed that, they haven't committed to a One Health approach in that, uh, in that aspect. We know that their economic response has been led by industry and mining, which is likely to lead us further into a pandemic era instead of bringing us out of one. 
We know that they have cut funding to environmental science courses in universities and they've cut funding to environmental organisations such as the Environmental Defenders Office. Um, and generally the, the gist of their uh, legal protections are being cut back as well with the amendments that they're trying to make to the National Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. So really, it seems that in their haste to have an economic recovery to COVID-19, they're taking the wrong steps to get us there. So on a worldwide sort of level, um, what changes have been put in place or are going to be put in place? So that's a very difficult question to answer because at, at a worldwide level, most countries are not as lucky as Australia in terms of dealing with the disease of the virus itself. So at a worldwide level, most countries are still in the thick of dealing with the virus and minimising transmissions and minimising deaths. So there hasn't really been a, a big response from individual countries around the world um, seeking that One Health approach to a response. But lucky, lucky for us, there are a lot of global organisations that are a little bit ahead and have the prerogative to be ahead and the impetus to be ahead because they're not concerned with um, minimising the effects of the virus on the ground. So, for example, IPBES has released this report, which is um, sent out to all of its member nations, including Australia, uh, to give some different ways to help prevent the next pandemic. We also have um, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature is taking steps to look at how they can help with the prevention. Um, we also have, as I mentioned earlier, the World uh, Organization for Animal Health, which is um, really tasked, as I mentioned earlier, with helping detect viruses before they are transmitted to people. And because of uh, this potential, or this, sorry, specific virus at the moment, they're taking further steps to increase their uh, funding to get better help on the ground to make sure that this transmission doesn't happen again. So there are definitely things happening around the globe, probably just not at the state level just yet. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? I think what is really important to take from this is that we don't need another organisation in Australia or another centre or another political approach that's focused on control of pandemics. We know that Australia has responded really well and has controlled this pandemic really well comparatively to other states, to other countries. What we need is a government and a system that is willing to do what is necessary to prevent the next pandemic. So what we need is a system or an organisation that is willing to take on a One Health approach to reduce the next pandemic. And we, we actually are in a really good place to do this. We have some great experts around Australia that are starting to implement One Health in different industries around Australia, for example, in agriculture. 
And we already have a Commonwealth Department that covers agriculture, water and environment under the one umbrella. So they have a really good starting point to look at all of these things together as a whole. Um, so yeah, I guess really what I'd like to say is that we really need to move away from looking at control of the next pandemic to preventing it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, do you have any future study plans within this field? Yeah, so the next step for me and my research team is to look at how we can take this report that IPES has drafted and take the policy recommendations and how we can implement them into Australian law and policy. So we're doing that by specifically looking at different industries around the country and how they are starting to implement approaches that are a little, are a little bit more consistent with pandemic prevention and how we can transfer that into a more global policy for Australian law. The other thing that we're doing is trying to get a sense of how people generally, the community generally, are reacting to this pandemic and whether it's making them more willing to go further in environmental protection than what we've seen lately. So we're going to do some social science studies as well to see if we can, uh, I guess, capitalise on, on the pandemic a little bit to get the prevention mechanisms that we need and get government on board to follow through with those mechanisms. Yeah, that's really good. Oh, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me.